0: Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast alongside Chris Dorcha, of Blue Ribbon. I'm Kevin Ingram. It is great to have you with us on our show today. We're going to visit with Patrick Stevens. He is a Blue Ribbon contributor and also a contributor for the Washington Post. We'll get his take on uh, bracketology. He has put together his own bracket, so uh, we'll see what Patrick has in store for us there. And a little bit later on in the show, our fastest growing segment, our Book of Boba Fett review. So looking forward to that. We'll climb out of the Sarlacc Pit and uh, see what's going on in this week's episode so chris how you doing man
1: <laughs> i'm doing well man I, I tell you what i i don't know whether i'm looking forward uh more to talking about hoops or boba fett but uh, <laughs> no actually actually it's hoops that's what uh, uh butters our bread uh, and it has for years glad to hear you're getting your voice back my friend Uh yeah. I listened to the podcast uh, last week and it wasn't those usual golden pipes. You'd, you'd been struggling a little bit with a sinus infection, hadn't you?
0: Yeah, I had a sinus infection. It actually happened when we were in Hawaii and uh, it took me about, it's taken me about three weeks. Last night uh, did the the Vanderbilt-Kentucky game and that was the first time I felt like it was back to, to pretty close to normal. So hopefully I'll uh, be okay taking some medicine along the way and uh I uh, got tested a couple times for COVID and came up negative. Thankfully, uh, you know a little bit of concern there, but uh, thankfully it wasn't that. But yeah, feeling better. I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully sounding a little better too. Uh, Chris, last night the final two unbeaten's went down. Uh, 19th ranked Texas Tech beat number one Baylor 65-62. Kevin McCuller hit a key three pointer. Baylor almost never loses at home. they had only lost at home once in the past three seasons. And then you also uh, out in uh, California, Stanford upset number five USC, seventy five sixty nine. So uh, Baylor and USC were the remaining unbeaten teams, and uh, now there are none.
1: It's crazy. I I, I saw this. I think ESPN research uh, uncovered this. Baylor had been the first defending national championship champion since Duke in two thousand one uh, two to be the last undefeated team in college basketball. Huh. So I guess they technically bit the dust before uh, USC did out on the left coast. They lost to Stanford, of course. But, man, is Texas Tech a story or what? Uh, I I don't know if there's another – I would be willing to bet everything I own that there's not another Division One men's basketball coach in the country that used to be a part owner of a minor league hockey team <laughs> like Mark <laughs> Adams did. Yeah. Mark Adams is, is the Texas Tech coach. He is such a great story, and, and he gives hope to every career assistant or every coach who has toiled in, in uh, conferences uh, below Division One. He literally spent his entire career coaching in West Texas. He was at Clarendon College. He was at Wayland Baptist, West Texas A&M, uh, Texas Rio Grande Valley. Then he gets out of it for like five years, and goes in uh, with his brother on a the Lubbock Cotton Kings hockey team. Oh man, which which is completely nuts. Th- then he goes to Howard College, uh, which is a JUCO in Texas. Texas has great junior college basketball. He was there uh, until uh, Chris Beard uh, plucked him away uh, for his staff at Little Rock. They were there one year, won thirty games went to Texas tech and Mark Adams was the architect of their defense. So this is a guy who's taken teams to national championship games at the JUCO level at the NAIA level. And now uh, you know, he wasn't the sexy pick to replace Chris Beard after the latter went to Texas, but boy, he was the best pick. Uh, And and he's just one of those guys that unless you're a hoop junkie like us, maybe never heard of uh, prior, but, He spent his whole life just perfecting his craft and his forte is defense. And boy, they laid some on Baylor in the second half. I think they held Baylor uh, to 39% from the floor and 21% from three in the second half. And he runs a switching defense and, and, uh, you know, help side. It's, it's really impressive to watch. And I never thought I'd really get into defense as much as I have this year, (laughs) but. Watching Tennessee so much and now keeping a closer eye on Texas Tech. Defense is kind of cool.
0: And you always love those stories of those guys who have uh, had that long journey and now getting the payoff, and it's cool to see uh, Mark Adams get that shot at Texas Tech after Chris Beard left for Texas. If Baylor drops out of the number one spot next week in the polls, I guess the question now is who moves up? Gonzaga would seem to be the most likely. Auburn maybe is the most deserving. Uh, They finished strong in an 81-77 road win at 24th ranked Alabama on Tuesday. Jabari Smith, the freshman, season high 25 points. Allen Flanagan is back. He hit really big free throws at the end. Man, Auburn looks terrific. Alabama had a chance still right there in the last minute. They were down two, and I believe it was Javon Quinterly he passed up a three in the corner that would have given Alabama the lead had he made it. He drove and missed. Auburn got the rebound, and Flanagan hit free throws to make it a four-point game. So that's one that could have gone either way, but that was a really big one for uh, Auburn to get out of there with a win at Coleman Coliseum.
1: It was a great game. I'll, I'll never forget, as long as I live, J.D. Davison's dunk in traffic for a six, 4 guard or whatever he is. It was awesome. It feels like he but, does yeah, that
0: every what, game, doesn't he?
1: he's he's off the charts athletically the the Quinnerly decision was puzzling uh you know he had the, the three and and you know you don't have to coax any Alabama player to launch a three and he drove but he didn't really put up a shot on goal the ball just sort of shot out you know straight to to the sky and yeah and then from there Flanagan who obviously is has lost nothing in terms of his clutch ability after having sat out so long with an Achilles issue, makes those four free throws. And I think you, I'll tell you what, Auburn will get a lot of number one votes uh, and, and justifiably so. Uh, their case 15 and one, 4 and 0 oh in the SEC. They've won 12 in a row, which ties Davidson for the longest win streak in the country. And the only loss was that double overtime. A defeat to to UConn, which ESPN picked as the best game of the season so far. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know it's unbelievable what Bruce Pearl does year after year. And to me, you know, we all know about Jabari Smith and Alan Flanagan, but he went he he went into the portal and literally rebuilt his backcourt. He he got an in-conference in conference transfer and K.D. Johnson from Georgia, who's averaging almost thirteen. Wendell Green Jr. from eastern Kentucky, uh, who transfers up but is dealing. He's averaging almost 13, four boards, and almost five assists, which leads the team. And they got another guard named Zepp Jesper from Charleston. He starts, uh, but you hardly ever hear of him because those other two those two other guys. So Bruce just Bruce is the best, one of the best motivators that that I've ever been around. And he's one of the best game-to-game planners that I've ever been around in terms of figuring out a way to win. It may not be what you do the game before or the game after, but he figures it. He figures it out. You know that game. Right. So he he's got a team. I mean, Walker Kessler played 13 minutes and they win at Alabama. Uh, you know, Mister Triple Double guy. Uh, so they're they're formidable and i think right now uh if if i had a vote which i, I haven't had an ap top 25 vote in a while but if i had uh, auburn would be my number one uh next week
0: chris I, I saw vanderbilt and kentucky at memorial gym on tuesday night the wildcats won 78 66 and that was after vanderbilt scored the last 16 points of the game kentucky led by 28 but oscar shibwe He was as advertised in that game. He had 30 points and 13 rebounds. He was just dominant around the basket on both ends of the court. Ty Ty Washington, the freshman, scored 15. For Kentucky, it's not a lot of three-pointers. It's a lot of close-in looks, mid-range jumpers. They knocked those down. 25 of their 31 field goals were two-point baskets. On Vanderbilt's side, Scotty Pippen Jr. had a really good game. He came out and had the look early on, scored 32, but really not enough help. They went on a run to tie the game at 22, but then Kentucky uh, pulled it back out by double figures at halftime. One thing that's hurting Vanderbilt right now is injuries, and Rodney Chapman, the uh, talented guard transfer from Dayton, had come back for a handful of games and has shown to really be a difference maker. Vanderbilt got on a nice run and and won um, most of those uh, that he played, but uh, he's out with a hamstring injury, and that really hurts Vanderbilt. We'll see when he's able to come back. But uh, I was pretty impressed with Kentucky. I, I thought they were they were really good. They're very athletic, including Shibway. Um, I think uh, pretty bright things ahead for John Calipari's team. And they're doing it without severe Wheeler right now after he got injured at LSU last week.
1: I got to ask you, man, you grew up in Kentucky. Uh, you were a wildcat fan. You always knew you wanted to get into radio and the dream was to call a a game for the cats. Um, you're not doing that, but you're in the SEC at a great school, and you you finally called a game against the Cats in your home gym. What did that feel like, man?
0: Uh, it's really cool, and and no matter how many times you see Vanderbilt and Kentucky play, it's special. Um, I, I did a game at Rupp Arena with uh, Belmont back in the 2013-14 season, and that was such a cool experience. As you get a little older, you sort of look at these things a little bit differently. Uh, certainly, I grew up in you know Big Blue Nation up there, and uh, it, it's it was just larger than life uh, basketball in that state whether it's Kentucky or Louisville or, or Western Kentucky where I went uh, there, there are tons of great programs up there you know Murray State too and Eastern Kentucky's had its moments but um, it, it's it's really neat and special to, to call games in the SEC and it was neat last night for me and, and to sit there with Tim Thompson and, and and before and after the game spend a little time with with Tom Leach and Mike Pratt who have called the Kentucky games for a long time and they're really really good but uh, just kind of cool to rub shoulders with some of those folks. Uh, I grew up listening to Kaywood Ledford call the Kentucky games and you know my dad and I would turn the TV sound down and listen to Kaywood on the radio whether the game was on TV or not and uh, that that's something that I don't know that that people in this generation would ever do or understand. Uh, but that, that was such a special time to spend with my dad. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's really neat to have these opportunities and what uh, will we'll be up there in a few weeks. But, you know, when, when you, you kind of get to this point, and you know, I, I work for Vanderbilt and this is my team, and so, you know, I, I'm pulling for Vanderbilt to, in these situations. But uh, re- really special to to make this lap around the SEC and get a chance to go to these places and, and see all the games in person this season. It's really cool.
1: It's funny you should mention turning down the sound of the TV and and, uh, listening to the radio. I have started to do that with you, my man. Oh yeah. Uh, And you have elevated your game. Uh, I must say, I, every time I, every chance I get, I'll, I'll go to Vanderbilt's website and, and it, you know, you, you click the button, listen live. And I turn down the sound. Sometimes you're a little ahead of the TV action. uh, And it's, uh, but nevertheless, I, I mean, man, uh, you have risen to the challenge of, of, of being an SEC play-by-play guy.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that, and I, I got to say, part of part of the dream for me was for for my dad and my mom to have the ability to to turn down the TV and listen to me call a game. That I, I have thought about that for a long time, and uh, you know that that was part of it for for me and my uncle too, who. In in a lot of ways, if there was a Kevin Ingram fan club, my my uncle would have been like the, the president emeritus. <laughs> I mean, uh, he yeah. he pretty much listened to or, or watched or consumed in some way everything I did. Um, after you know, he, he had a little bit of a radio career of his own, but uh, was injured in an accident and not really able to fulfill that. So you know, for me, this is this is very much living the dream, especially calling college basketball and and being in the SEC and all those things. So uh, well, it, it's well deserved. It, really and,
1: and by the way. I am the president of the Kevin Ingram family. (laughs) You can get your 8x10 glossies. (laughs) I only sign flats on Thursdays. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I'm in charge of the 8x10 glossies. I'm like Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. (laughs) That's cool. Selling them for a buck a pop.
0: I appreciate that. Well, Chris, our guest this week is Patrick Stevens. He writes for Blue Ribbon. He is a contributor for the Washington Post. He's a bracketologist in his own right. You can find him on Twitter at Discourse. That's d one S C O U R S E. Patrick, what's going on?
2: Not much, fellas.
1: How are you this morning? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, I'll tell you, just uh, by way of introduction, uh, uh, for years uh, there was a guy that, that contributed for Blue Ribbon named Al Featherston, and unfortunately he's passed, but uh he helped me with all manner of things and and gave me suggestions and for all American teams and the polls. And when Al got sick uh, uh, and eventually passed away, it was, it was a big loss to college basketball. And it was a big loss to Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. But then Mike Ashley recommends this guy, Patrick Stevens, to me. And he has filled Al's huge shoes as as a a kind of advisor and and uh i just run stuff past you and i i really appreciate that man i really appreciate your contributions and and all that you've done for the book and thanks for joining us today
2: well first of all i want to thank you for for having me today and of course having me uh with blue ribbon in general it's a it's a great joy to be able to catch up with so many folks in, in basketball each summer and of course as you know uh and maybe your listeners don't know I do a lot of the mid-major stuff for for you. I mean, I've got the Duke preview, you know, to kind of continue the Al Featherston line there. Uh right. But it's a lot. It's a lot of other leagues. Uh, I think it's the full MiAC, good chunk of the SWAC, part of the A10, a lot, lot of different leagues, and it, it's really neat to be able to to kind of drill in and, and and learn about different so many different teams each summer.
1: I'd like to think that uh, your versatility for us has helped you now. I cannot believe you've had the guts to do this, my man, but you have uh, unleashed bracketology in the Washington Post, which I subscribe to, great newspaper. Uh, What made you do that, and
2: how tough is it? Well, I mean, I've been doing it for quite a while now. I mean, this is is something that's gone back over multiple outlets, but the, the decision to do this year's bracket already, you know, some of it's a matter of... You gotta make money, right? Like I mean there's a there's a financial incentive there. Uh but it is muddled, that's for sure. You get beyond the first I don't know, I'd say thirty teams or so at this point, and good luck hashing out at this moment anything beyond about the eight or the nine line. Uh now, in fairness, a lot of times in early to mid January it's that way. There's a reason why I wouldn't touch this until once we get into conference play in any given year. There just isn't enough data to work with. And right now, you know, you got about half the season. So the inclination of people to say, well, this is definitely going to be the case, or this league has no chance at that, or this team's done, I like to tell people, in mid-January, everybody's a four-game winning streak away from being in decent shape, or just about anybody. And just about anybody's a four-game losing streak away from being in some trouble. So uh, at this point it is early, uh, but it's certainly good to be able to get the reps doing it and piecing it together. I've, I've found over the years that doing the first one of the season takes forever because you're kind of reminding yourself of oh that team did this back in December or whatnot. By the time we get to uh, by the time we get to the you know late February or so, not only will all that just be sort of automatic. The other stuff that will be automatic is, well, you can't put these two teams together because they played during the regular season. So I think like a USC, UC Irvine can't go together this year because they played something along those lines. So uh, that's uh, that's one of the longer term benefits of that.
0: Patrick, I was looking at the bracket, your top seeds, at least for now, Baylor, Arizona, Gonzaga and Purdue. We live in the heart of SEC country here. What do you feel like the ceiling is for that conference? You had six, and do you think in the end that that will probably sound about right?
2: I think it might be six or maybe even seven, ultimately. I mean, you're talking about some teams that are higher shelf to start with. Those those six teams that we're talking about, Kentucky, Auburn, Alabama, Tennessee, I'm just going off the top of my head yeah. here. Uh, you know, those te- LSU, I mean, those teams are all in really good shape. We're not talking about teams... That at this point you'd be thinking about as double digit seeds. So the question is, is there somebody else lurking down there that's able to make a run? Maybe that's Texas A&M. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think that's a team that to this point you look at what they've done in aggregate. It, it, it's pretty good. It, it, there isn't much that's overwhelming, but they haven't messed up in any way. And that's exactly the kind of team in a year that feels muddled that you can look up at the end of the year and they're twenty three and eight and they've beaten some decent teams and haven't done anything bad. And there you go. There's an eight or a nine seed right, right there. Right. So, you know, I there, I think there's a lot of flux this season uh, for for any number of, of teams at this point. I mean, it's, a, it's a teams, not conferences deal, but I do feel like there's a handful of teams in the SEC, A&M being one of them. Arkansas, if they can figure things out at some point, certainly goes into that category as well. Florida, I think I have in the field barely at this point. All those teams are are in a spot where if they can figure things out and have a good three or four weeks, I think back to that Vanderbilt team from what seventeen or so that yeah. just dominated in favor. I'm making the Vanderbilt reference here Thank too. You. That was one. That was one of the two <laughs> I was planning to do. I was also going to congratulate you on getting your fill of red candle last night. That's fantastic. Oh yeah, I have, I have not had my first post pandemic or post. March 2020 Red Panda experience, so that's awesome for you, but I think about that Vanderbilt team that everybody left for dead four or five years ago, and had a great February, and they're in great shape all of a sudden. It's kind of a similar deal now. There's any number of teams that we might think, gosh, they're in a boatload of trouble, and they could find their way into, into safe harbor just with a few good weeks yeah
0: I think Red Panda if you're doing like seedings of halftime acts she, she is a number one seed uh, pretty Absolutely. much every single <laughs> year you know maybe <laughs> number one
2: overall <laughs>
0: right number wow. one overall for sure uh Chris uh, mentioned your coverage of Duke what sort of send-off could that program have for Coach K they're ranked number eight right now 12 and two they've gone off to a two and one start in the ACC but what do you see ahead down the road here
2: Well, I I think it's an interesting team. I think it's obviously a better team than what they had last season when they had their share of COVID issues. They had Jalen Johnson's midseason departure. Nothing really worked right for them last year. And so they have a little bit more experience with their team. Uh, Wendell Moore Jr. has had himself a great junior season. You look at Jeremy Roach. He's a year older. Mark Williams, uh, after a little bit of a sluggish start, has come on. And they have their freshmen as well that are, that are contributing big time. Uh, Bancaro, for sure, the obvious guy, but Trevor Keels in that mix too. You know, there's so many different things that could happen with this Duke team. And I'm going to move ahead to the postseason, as tempting as it is to kind of sit here and say, how are they going to do with the ACC? Think about these possibilities. Think about two possible regional sites for Duke this year. They could end up in Philadelphia, on the 30th anniversary of the Leitner shop for a regional. Hmm. He could be playing a regional final in Philadelphia across the parking lot from the old building. Or he could be in the Midwest regional and go to his hometown of Chicago for his final regional with the potential wow. to go to a final four. So, you know, there's so many subplots that even if you, you know, you, you think about like, the last ACC tournament, last trip to Chapel Hill, last game against, you know, pick pick an opponent, right? Uh, but there's so many subplots that go even into when you get into the postseason. There's just, it, it's really a lot of fun. And I think that this Duke team, despite the loss to Miami the other night, is still in much, much better shape to be able to make that kind of a run. I, I don't know if there'll be a Final Four team, but I, they give me the sense of a team that you're going to have to play really well to defeat them. And Ohio State played really well to defeat them. And Miami, which is a a team that's just ancient with all the old guys that they have on their roster, they played really well to defeat So I don't think they're unstoppable, but I don't see that team going quietly once it gets into the postseason.
1: Patrick, uh, after Mark Turgeon
2: left Maryland, we had Mike Ashley on,
1: uh, our mutual friend. Both of you cover Maryland what has happened uh since with danny manning taking over as an interim and who do you think makes sense to take over that program it's not a an easy gig as you know by any means
2: it it is not but there's also some assets there too when you when you think about uh you know a passionate fan base and, and all that sort of stuff uh you know, how things have gone since danny manning took over they were 5 and 3 uh when Turgeon departed in early december and here we are a little bit about a month later or so and they're eight and seven and going to Northwestern uh they're oh and four in the big 10 it's only the eighth time in program history that Maryland has started a conference season oh and four and four of those by the way happen to be the final season for coaches Frank Fellows who was the guy before Lefty Drizell, Lefty Drizell, Bob Wade and now Mark Turgeon so there's there's a little little Maryland stat for you for the day Mm -hmm. uh but you know it, 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 they they found themselves in a spot on Sunday night. You know, they were down 21 right out of the shoot to Wisconsin, came back to actually take the lead on a couple occasions, uh, and then lost by one at the end. So what I would tell you is, is it's a team that hasn't stopped fighting, which is a good sign. You know, they did the same thing the other night to a degree against Illinois. They were down early, rallied back, took a halftime lead, and then just got Kofi Coburn to death in the second half. So, you know, for them – At eight and seven, it's clearly not a season that's headed. So at the very least, they have some lead time to begin that coaching search behind the scenes. I keep saying to people that I feel like this is a program that when you look at Lefty and you look at Gary Williams, there was personality. There was Mm -hmm. somebody people could rally around. There was a, in different ways for both of those guys, sort of a defiant chip on the shoulder type thing. You know, Gary, Gary's manifested itself much more obviously. Lefty was more of a showman, but that was, that was somebody people could identify with. And I feel like there's some personality that's needed there. You know, the, the tempting person, when you think about personality in college basketball uh, and maybe somebody that might be drawn to the Northeast, the name everybody comes up with is Bruce Pearl, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if you draw Bruce Pearl away from Auburn, especially if this is another Final Four team or close to but a couple other names that stand out to me as people that I know have personality and would be charismatic and could be rallied around Ed Cooley at Providence. Uh, can you pry okay. him out of new England? Cause he hasn't left new England. He's been a head coach at Fairfield, assistant coach at Boston college in Rhode Island. Uh, he's done great work at Providence. And, you know, I think he's, he's certainly a guy that he can keep rattling off twenty win seasons up there. Uh, but at the same time, I think the the ceiling's a bit higher at Maryland than it is at Providence. Another name, and this is a name, Chris, I know you're plenty familiar with, who I think is a really charismatic guy that people would really embrace at Maryland, and that's Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. Oh, yeah. And and Forbes has done great work, obviously, at East Tennessee State, Uh, and then you kind of look at what's happened at Wake Forest, and they've started their turnaround. You can see them I think being a, a team that you know, you look around the ACC where there's not that many great teams. And if you have a good coach and some veteran dudes, I could see them finishing fourth or fifth in that league and, and winding up as like a nine or a 10 C. Uh, And I think the ceiling at Maryland is higher than it is at Wake Forest. So that's the name that that I haven't heard thrown out there. But to me, I feel like, you know, that would make a lot of sense uh, for, for both parties, potentially that said, I'm just—I'm making that up out of whole cloth. That's not rooted in any sort of reality. I'm just saying that that when thinking about what Maryland needs and what that fan base would desire, that that would be a very interesting match. You know
1: what? I don't know if Steve and we talk or text—you uh, know, a couple times a month. I don't know if he would want to leave Wake in the ACC, but I'll tell you what—it's it, an intriguing uh, thought at Maryland because he's just like Lefty. He's a showman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like Lefty would have used social media if he'd had mm-hmm. it back in the day. Forbes does that. Uh, even Facebook and, you know, obviously Twitter and everything else. And, and, and he wins. Uh, and the other thing is he doesn't have to sign five-star kids uh, to be successful. He, he's an old JUCO coach, and he's been able to, you know, throw component parts
2: together. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I have a friend that that is in. Uh, he he used to be a, a dobo and a video coordinator at College Hoops, and he's now on the administration side. And he talks about this on the football side and the basketball side. He goes, you know, you have an open job. Go find a guy who can just coach. Like, yeah. find a guy that can just coach, and you'll solve a lot of your problems. Right. Now, don't worry about all this other stuff. If you got a guy that can coach, he'll he'll figure out a lot of the issues that you have. And watching the, I loved that East Tennessee State team a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Everybody in the country, I felt like they might have been more robbed than anybody by the pandemic. There you go. Um, yeah, you know, I just, I just thought that that team was headed to the Sweet Sixteen. They were going to get, they were going to knock off some two seed in the Sweet Sixteen or in the second well, round. I, I,
1: I, I knew it would happen. I, I was never so sad. <laughs> and then he leaves, and Forbes leaves, so everybody knows I went to ETSU. So I
2: hated that.
0: Patrick, one
2: Uh, In any any case, oh, sorry.
0: No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish your thought.
2: I I think I lost my train of thought there. That's my bad.
0: Patrick, one more for you before we let you go. Uh, How cool to see the MLK Day game scheduled on Monday in D.C. with Notre Dame visiting Howard and and really the connections between the coaches, Mike Bray and Kenneth Blakeney, going back to, to Duke days.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's really one of the highlights on the schedule around here. I'm up here in the Baltimore, D.C. area, and uh, this was a game that was supposed to be played last season, Uh and then Howard's COVID issues basically shut down their season. So Mike Bray, I've I've talked to Mike Bray about Kenneth Blakely in the past. He's like, I can still remember his address from writing handwritten notes to Mm -hmm. him when I was an assistant at Duke, and it was something, something, Missouri Avenue. (laughs) I can't remember the number, but he Mm -hmm. most certainly did. (laughs) And so, you know, Mike Bray, a really good guy, agreeing to come back this year instead. And so that's a, a Monday afternoon game on Fox uh, as, as uh, I believe it's the first time that uh, an ACC school has played at an HBCU in, in quite some time, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't see too many of those. The last, uh, the last one to come to Howard, I believe was Oregon state when Craig Robinson was coaching. Yeah. And it was basically uh, because he was Barack Obama's brother-in-law that was in like, Oh, 10 or Oh nine or something like that. So, uh, just a just a neat opportunity, like I said. You know, Bray was an assistant at Duke when 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 Kenneth Blakeney was a player there. Worked on Bray's staff at Delaware. Uh, you, you know, Rob Bolonis, the longtime Notre Dame assistant, now an assistant at Howard this season. Uh, so all sorts of ties there. The, the the Duke family is strong. You know, Tyler Fortin, the former Duke guard from about seven or eight years ago, was an assistant on uh, the Howard staff as well. So there's a lot of Duke going on there. Uh, but obviously, a, a, a great opportunity uh, for Howard to have a brand name opponent in town and a great opportunity uh, for the players and and, and coaches at Notre Dame to get that HBCU experience. You know, I've been to Bird Gymnasium plenty of times over the years. It is, it's a little band box. It's kind of the floor is sunken into, into, into the, into the arena. And then you've got sort of a, a, a walkway around it. Uh, And so it seats about 2,500, but it sounds like about 30,000 people are in there, even when there's only like 1,500 people. So it's uh, certainly going to be a neat atmosphere and experience for everybody.
0: Good stuff. Patrick Stevens, he writes for Blue Ribbon, he writes for the Washington Post, and joining us here on our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Appreciate the time. Hope we can uh, catch up with you again down the road.
2: Fellas, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Take care.
0: And again, that was Patrick Stevens. You can find him on Twitter at Discourse. That's D-1-S-C-O-U-R-S-E. All right, Chris, we've reached a part of the podcast that everybody's waited for, and that's our uh, recap of the book of Boba Fett, our spoiler-filled recap that we bring you every week.
1: Fastest-growing segment.
0: Oh, it's, it's the fastest-growing segment in any form of media, I have a feeling. But uh, <laughs> episode two, we, we saw Boba Fett's relationship with the Tuscan Raiders and how he helped them yeah. stop a train of smugglers. And then they, they took him into the tribe and, and they, you know, they help him make the, the weapon, uh, it was called a gaffy stick or something like that. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, it, it was a terrific episode and you know, all of this is basically him recollecting these things while he's sleeping. Uh, you, you have this, the here and now part of the storyline, but then you have the, the backstory and, and a lot of episode two was about the Tuscan Raiders.
1: Yeah. It, it's a great way to uh, a vehicle as a storyteller myself and a writer, I, I and, and a teacher of the same, I appreciate the vehicle. Uh, my son, the film historian called this episode a cross between two classic films, the guns of Navarone and the great train robbery, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and look them both up. Uh, uh, it's, it's apropos, but what struck me is, uh, after he helped them take down the train, uh, the the Tuscan leader says, "I got a gift for you." And he opens a box, and this lizard jumps out and climbs up into Boba's nose, and, and all of a sudden, Boba is like tripping, man. Oh yeah! And he's wandering through the desert, and and he, and it's so crazy, and, and he he gets this this branch that they turn into his club, and you, you could just see him. Saying, you know, man, I really appreciate the lizard and the acid trip. But next time you want to send me a gift, how about a fruit basket? Dude? <laughs> but it, it was crazy, and what I really liked uh at the end, uh, after he'd gotten his his staff built for him, I I don't know how they forged uh, a piece of wood uh into a what seemed like metal. I guess they combined yeah they combined with wood, mm-hmm. but they 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 get to the campfire and and. And Boba uh, uh, gets up and, and starts doing this boogie with it with his rod and another guy does, and all of a sudden I swear, I expected to see out of a sand dune the doors playing five to one because <laughs> that, that dun, dun, dun. And then the next thing you know, all the Tuscans are getting up in boogieing and, and around the campfire and, and the old leader gets up and and it was just the coolest thing. Uh Tamora T- morrison who plays boba is a new zealander and i've heard that compared to the hacka dance that one-, one of the new zealand rugby clubs oh, does yeah? uh, look it up on uh youtube it's pretty cool but yeah uh boba never ceases to amaze and i all the credit to john favreau the showrunner and the writer he's he's brilliant i mean if, if you just thought of him you know for some light comedy or or uh, animated films like Lion King or or the reboot of Iron Man. He's a Star Wars geek at heart.
0: And I think we are too. Chris will do it again next week. Appreciate the time and uh, always enjoy doing our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast.
1: Same, buddy. Take care.
0: He's Chris Dornch. I'm Kevin Ingram. We'll talk to you soon.